Creative Babble. Javier, one of the websites that I love most is called PonziTracker.com. I'm not kidding you. There's a person <laughs> out there in this world who is the Ponzi Tracker. Like, You're seriously. Saying that there's a person out there that's more obsessed about Ponzi schemes than you? <laughs> that's debatable, but I'll tell you this much. He's the Ponzi Tracker. He's a pretty interesting dude. What's his name? Who is this guy? His name is Jordan Maglich. He is an attorney based in Florida, and he's worked some pretty incredible Ponzi cases, and he's just fascinated by Ponzi schemes. Wow, so this is pretty cool. We're going to have our first guest on the Ponzi Playbook. That's, that's pretty awesome. So today's show is a little different, but I think this guy has seen it all. He has seen every shade of Ponzi schemes that exist right now. He sure has, and I am thrilled that I had the chance to speak with him. The conversation just kept going and going, so we really just kind of wanted to focus on some of the most interesting parts and share that with our beloved Ponzi listeners. All right, well, let's get into it. You ready? Let's do it. I'm Neil McTie. I'm Javier Leva. And this is the Ponzi Playbook. So everybody, welcome to the Ponzi Playbook. We have Jordan Maglich. Everyone in the Ponzi world knows Jordan. He runs PonziTracker.com. He has a seasoned history in the legal sphere, working Ponzi cases, and just being an all-around expert and observer and has been on numerous media platforms sharing his thoughts and observations on Ponzi schemes. Jordan, thank you for joining us here on the Ponzi Playbook. It's great to have you. Absolutely. Thanks, Neil. I appreciate you having me. Can you take the listener down the road a bit about your motivation for creating PonziTracker.com, its purpose, and what your goals are for it? Neil, I graduated law school uh, and actually business school as well, kind of the depth of the uh, Great Recession. So saw Madoff collapse as I was a law student and a business student, you know, Madoff literally and I guess figuratively opened the floodgates for Ponzi schemes. I guess jumping ahead a good bit, I ultimately developed this theory that Ponzi schemes were really lagging indicators of economic activity. And what I mean is when you have financial markets that are performing well, no one's really questioning or questioning as much if someone says to you, hey, I, you know, I can, I've made five or 8% the last few years. Because you may look and say, well, the markets were up 5, 10, 15% each year. So that's pretty believable. But when the markets start going down and you start seeing a lot of financial pain, that's when you see people start really asking for their money back. And that avalanche of, of requests and the terrible economic climate ultimately leads to these Ponzi schemes collapsing through their own weight. When I joined the firm in mid-2010, you know, it was uncharted territory in a lot of ways trying to figure out what was really the best avenue of recovery um, that we could pursue for our victims. And you look around, it seemed every day there was a new Ponzi scheme that was collapsing or, or being uncovered. You also had Madoff, which 
there was teams of dozens or hundreds of lawyers working on that, employing various legal theories. And my head was on a swivel in a sense, just trying to keep track of what else was going on. Are there avenues that we need to consider? Are there theories that we need to consider? So, you know, in mid 2011, it kind of came to me, you know, why not start a blog and track these Ponzi schemes, maybe use my growing knowledge and expertise in that space to provide a little educated commentary. That's how it started. I'd come home from work, I'd write an article or two at night. And for a while, I was writing hundreds of articles a year. So I think ultimately, there's over a thousand different articles on the website. I'd like to think that the news articles aren't just a regurgitation of what the charges are. They're insight into why the charges are brought, what the next steps might be. I'm also a big fan of data. At one point, I said, why not start tabulating the data for these annually and semi-annually and trying to figure out, are there trends? Is there anything that we can take from this? Well, Neil, this is really interesting stuff. I'm digging this conversation. You know, earlier in the intro, you mentioned that Jordan works in pretty high-profile Ponzi schemes. Did did you guys talk about any of those? Yes, Jordan sure did work some pretty cool cases. Actually, one of the cases he worked was this Ponzi schemer named Arthur Nadell. He was dubbed Mini Madoff. I'm not joking. And <laughs> he was the key player in what became the largest investment swindle in Southwest Florida's history. Arthur Nadell ran six hedge funds in downtown Sarasota, And they all collapsed in January 2009, go figure, after some investors tried to retrieve their money. But when the SEC and the U.S. Attorney's Office filed charges against Nadell, what did he do? He fled town. But eventually, Mm -hmm. Nadell turned himself in and ended up spending the rest of his life in prison. When I initially joined the firm, which was called Weingar King, that was a, a hedge fund that was run by a fellow named Arthur Nadell. And Mr. Nadell ultimately brought in hundreds of millions of dollars and had sold the fiction that he was generating significant above average returns month after month, year after year, you know, despite the natural ups and downs of the markets. That, believe it or not, I think that receivership is still open to this day. Wow. Um, just because what year are we going back to? What was the when did that that begin? So funny story and not really funny. A lot of these schemes happened because of Bernard Madoff. A lot of the schemes collapsed because of Bernard Madoff. Madoff in December of, of 08, um, obviously it sends shockwaves throughout the financial markets. You know, this is a former chair of NASDAQ, highly respected in the financial world. You know, tens of billions of dollars are, are thought to be lost. And I think it it caused a lot of not only investors, but it caused a lot of people involved in investment management. To you know, to start questioning, you know, are we doing our audits? Are you know, are are we actually generating the returns that we're saying? So, Mr. Nadell, one of his partners, had actually suggested that they do an independent audit, which Mr. Nadell had been avoiding, unsurprisingly. And he ultimately wrote a suicide note to his wife, shredded it, took off, and the employees at the office were actually able to piece together his suicide note from the shredder. Gave that to the FBI. He was indicted. He eventually turned himself in after two weeks. Ultimately, was sentenced to 12 years in prison, died in prison. So that was one that has lasted more than a decade simply because of the intricacies involved, the process of recovering funds, the hundreds of lawsuits that were brought against banks, against law firms, against, against victims, believe it or not. And the fact that there was another Ponzi scheme that he had actually invested in, which ultimately was brought into that receivership. So 
when I say that these can sometimes outlast the length of the fraud that was ongoing, it is the truth. That was one. Another one was called TriMed. And TriMed was one that popped up actually like March 5th, 2014. I'll never forget that date, which was a medical factoring Ponzi scheme. And that Ponzi scheme raised almost $20 million from people, mostly elderly Florida folks. And they thought that they were investing in these medical accounts receivable secured by letters of protection. And what that was typically used in car accident cases where car accident victim goes to a lawyer, the lawyer sets the victim up with various treatment providers, doctors, and neither the victim nor the lawyer has the money to pay the the doctor at that point in the case. So what they say is, we'll give you this letter of protection and any recovery we get out of this lawsuit, we'll use that to pay your bills. So, and this, this is something I'll kind of get in depth into because I spent a long time dealing with this case, but that was what this Ponzi scheme sold to people, the fiction that they were going to get consistent 5 to 8% returns that were generated by TriMed purchasing these letters of protection from these doctors. Uh, there were ads run in newspapers comparing it to a certificate of deposit, giving it that same aura of legitimacy yeah. and, and guarantee. But in reality, these were far from it. These weren't guaranteed. They told people they were guaranteed by insurance companies, but they simply weren't. There was simply a, a hope that there, there is a recovery in the underlying lawsuit, and that recovery is enough to pay the doctor that provided treatment. Jordan, was it uh, multiple schemers or one? The Florida Office of Financial Regulation filed a lawsuit, and they're a state regulator. You know, this SEC is a federal regulator, so this was the state regulator. They filed a lawsuit alleging that Jeremy Anderson, Anthony Nicholas Jr., Eric Egger, Erwin Egger, and Teresa Simmons were involved in this. By all accounts, the mastermind was a, a fellow by the name of Jeremy Anderson. What happened to Jeremy? So Jeremy is in prison right now. Um, okay. it, it took a while. Um, a lot of times, I mean, these are very complex cases. And sometimes it happens where the SEC files these charges and the US Attorney's Office or a, another criminal agency also brings charges at that time. It also happens that the SEC may be the first agency to bring charges and criminal charges come later. That was the case in, in TriMed. I think Mr. Anderson was ultimately indicted sometime in 18 or 19. Um, wow. A couple of his, his co-conspirators were indicted before that and had, had pleaded guilty uh, and served much smaller prison sentences. Wow. So a significant amount of time, right? It, it was a, a significant in a lot of ways. And in some aspects, it really did complicate the receiver's job because, and this was all in the, the public filings, Mr. Anderson appeared to be heavily involved in really trying to turn the victims against the receiver in that case, getting victims to file bankruptcy to try to thwart the receiver's efforts, filing various motions to have the receiver removed. If you think about it, a lot of these the victims in TriMed, a lot of them were elderly, Florida's has a very large population of retirees who often have money in the bank. And it's money in the bank that they're expecting to use to live the rest of their lives. So Anderson and TriMet had sold this vision to these people that they were going to get these consistent returns. And they believed it because every month they got a check in the mail that cashed. So when the Office of Financial Regulation brought these charges, shut the scheme down, that was a good thing. But to these folks, that was a bad thing because it meant that their checks stopped coming. So we saw Anderson behind the scenes really rallying these folks and trying to paint the receiver 
And the government is the bad guy saying, if they go away, your checks will resume. Which they're willing to side with because that's in fact the truth, right? It doesn't mean that the checks were legitimate. It just means that they were coming and suddenly they're not. So Jordan, based on your experience working these Ponzi cases and also just being an observer of Ponzi schemes across the country, have you noticed any sort of recurring personality traits, characteristics that tend to define Ponzi schemers? Yeah, you know, and obviously I'm not a psychiatrist or have any kind of medical degree, but I think that there's a compelling argument to be made and probably a lot of research to be done that a lot of the people that are masterminding these Ponzi schemes have some kind of sociopathic or something wrong psychologically with them. Just given that they're so comfortable getting people to part with their money, knowing that it's a big chunk of their life savings or something they'd set aside that they'd worked their whole life for and doing it without emotion and having no problem at all knowing that what they're doing is not what they're telling that person they're going to do and that it very likely is going to result in that person not seeing that money again. Not saying that these the Ponzi schemers don't think that they're going to succeed because I 100% think that they're probably going to succeed in whatever they do, but it's just not what they're telling the people what they're taking their money for. And you know, one thing that probably won't surprise you and that's that I see consistently in the data is 9 out of 10 Ponzi schemers are men. Every year it's across the board, 9 out of 10. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've noticed Jordan that a lot of embezzlement cases are women. That I've I've followed this trend that, you know, the accountant, the bookkeeper, the controller, and these embezzlement schemes. I mean, even one, it, it was so sort of on point. Her last name was Steele. Like, I'm not kidding you. That's her last name in North Carolina, S-T-E-E-L-E, who embezzled some 15 million from her company. Is there also an age component when you see, you know, nine out of 10 are men, right? I mean, it's, it's, it is true. I, I see this myself, right? It's predominantly men. Is there an age period when it's typically happening? I don't think fraud discriminates in terms of age. So I think <laughs> it's really, if you, you know, want to do it and you're ready, you could do it at, at, at yeah. 15. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of a yeah. saying you hear from your, your parents when you're a kid, you know, if you put your mind to it, you can do anything. Um, <laughs> so it's, you know, it, Honestly, I think it's more of whether that person has that gift of gab or or somehow um, figures out how to use it, and you know it, it doesn't really matter what age they are when they figure out how to use it. Yeah, just here in North Carolina, there was a Ponzi scheme somewhere around nine million, and it was a young twenty-something year old mm-hmm. guy who just had a little townhome, but he was just raking in cash, and yeah, clearly had the gift of gab. You can be in your 20s. You can be like Doc Gallagher, one of the episodes, someone who's almost 80 years old uh, mm-hmm. and being taken down. Can you share with our listeners here, you know, what's, what's the craziest thing? If you could single out one thing, what's the craziest thing you've ever seen a Ponzi schemer do? Yeah. I mean, look, and I've written over a thousand articles. So a lot of the articles are about Ponzi schemers being accused, but a lot of them are also about other more salacious parts of that. And, and and this was just one I wasn't involved with, but one Ponzi schemer, Aubrey Price, faked his death and made it look like he jumped from a ferry in Key West, uh, was declared dead by his wife a year later. And then they busted him a year later for having a legal tent driving around and apparently running a grow huh. house at his house. So oh and he, he's now in prison. But 
I, whether fortunately or unfortunately, also had a front row seat in some of the cases I work in just some crazy parts. But one of the questions that came up, Javier asked me on a prior episode was, we talked about a case out of North Carolina. It was Rick Siski who who committed suicide. Jordan, we're just not sure. I mean, is that, have you seen a lot of suicides? Um, because, you know, we're looking at in Australia, you know, it's possible. It, it appears that, you know, Melissa Caddick committed suicide. No one's certain about that as of now. We have the Rick Siski case. In your experience, have you seen other cases where suicide was the final decision of a, of a schemer? Yeah. So believe it or not, I think one of the first cases that my colleague was appointed as a receiver on, and it was actually when I was in law school, my colleague's name was Bert Wyand, but it was the Waxenberg Ponzi scheme. And Mr. Waxenberg, when you know the investigators were closing in, had sat under a tree outside and blown his brains out. You see it with perpetrators. I, I hate to say it, but I think you see it more with, with victims. Oh. And I, I kind of likened it in my, in my head to economic homicide. That some of these people were committing against their victims, going back to what I said earlier, knowing devastating. Yeah, taking taking money from them that they knew was a that they'd worked their their whole lives for, that that was their savings, or that it was set aside for a grand grandchild. And you know, these people are left with nothing. And fortunately, I think they they end up recovering more than more than zero um, when there's a receiver involved, or Madoff victims will ultimately get paid 100. percent but Madoff, I think in the aftermath, the initial aftermath of Madoff, there were multiple suicides from victims who either had been entrusted with money from people that they were feeder funds that were putting money into Madoff, or just people who were, went from multimillionaires overnight to penniless. Yeah, including Madoff's own son. When we put it through that lens, I think you, I think that was really important, right? The way you phrased that economic homicide, wow, that really hits at home. You've had to sue victims. What's up with that? So one one topic that I think is always interesting, and especially from people who you know maybe you know know of Ponzi schemes, but never been involved with them, we have to sue victims sometimes, and we have to sue victims because they made money from the Ponzi scheme, and it's not equitable for them to keep their false profits and the people who invested early. So that's always a very interesting topic, and it's you know we've had to sue charities, the Boys and Girls Club. But you know, at the end of the day, there's people who in, who invest at the last minute and lost 100% of their investment. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a weird concept when you just think about it objectively and from a 10,000 foot level. There's some investors who may have been long term investors with the scheme, and they were fortunate enough to get money back, whether it's distributions, whether it's interest, dividends, whatever that you want to call it, that exceeds their investment, and they may get profits. And all along, they may be thinking that this is great. I'm still making profits. And then you contrast that with maybe a victim who invests in June of 2023, and the scheme collapses in July of 2023. So you have your longtime investor who's not only made back their initial investment, but maybe then some, and then your later investor who has suffered 100% loss. So what, what the, the courts have said is it's not equitable for those investors to keep their profits because they're not profits, they're stolen money. And when you can prove a Ponzi scheme, 
any profits that they've gotten, it's simply a reallocating money from Peter to pay Paul. So we've had to sue victims and there's nothing fun about it. You know, these mm. victims understandably are shocked, you know, hey, I'm a victim. Why, why are you suing me? But you like to think that you're doing the most equitable thing possible as a receiver. That's your job. But at the end of the day, the receiver's number one job is to recover as much money as possible that can soften the ultimate impact for victims. So like I said, those are usually the biggest source of recovery. If you look at it in Madoff, I mean, Jeff Pickauer was a very wealthy investor who had invested with him from the onset. And Pickauer alone had, I think, seven or $8 billion in profits. So not only is like seven or eight billion in investments in profits over his investments. So when he paid that money back, his estate reached a an agreement to pay after he died and after Madoff was arrested, that single-handedly resulted in a lot of the victims getting back most of their money. So it's just to illustrate, and that's obviously an outsized example, but it's a valuable tool in the receiver's arsenal. Yeah. I mean, that's that's fascinating. And I can imagine there's a lot of difficulty in that litigation both ethically, but also legally, right? And also, are you suing somebody who's capable of even repaying it? So I can see how that's very difficult, but it's also you know, right and just. We took a very thoughtful approach with that, Neil. And that was what something I think that Burt Wine did a really good job of. I mean, especially with these, you know, the charities that we sued, but, you know, with every clawback victim, you know, we, we looked, you know, at their finances and we looked at their ability to pay. So it certainly wasn't a situation where receivers just out to get a judgment and bankrupt someone, you know, and no one's under the illusion that these people who are making money from what they think is a legitimate investment are just stacking it up under their bed. I mean, people are spending it, using it to, you know, to yeah. have their life go on. But I think we took a very thoughtful approach to that and did what we needed to, to satisfy the receiver's duty to the court, but also to still be human and compassionate. So Jordan, we're coming to the end of the show. Thank you so much. I mean, this has been really, really fascinating. And I'd like to just mention again, PonziTracker.com. Are you on any social channels? Where can we find you? Uh, maybe on like like Twitter, for example, or whatever it's called, X. So I guess I'm on X, the social platform formerly known as Twitter. The handle is PonziTracker. Um, also on LinkedIn as well. But those I think are the, the two socials I've confined myself to. Absolutely. And we'll make sure that we tweet out a link to your site, but also your LinkedIn so that people can connect with you. All right. right. Thanks again, Neil. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. So Neil, that was, that was pretty awesome. It was very different, you know, like listening to somebody who does this day in and day out. And, you know, we've covered a lot of Ponzi schemes and it never really occurred to me that some of the ways that, that you have to recover money is by suing the victims. I thought that that whole idea of the clawback, that was fascinating. It really is. I mean, just even the word clawback, right? I mean, it's like to be subject to a clawback is certainly not going to be a pleasant thing, but it's helped make victims whole and it's perceived as an equitable way to achieve that result. So what do we, what do we got going on next week? So we have a lot of dramatic personalities that we've introduced here on the Ponzi Playbook, and we've got another one. And this story takes us on a crazy, dramatic police chase. This is the most action-packed in Ponzi Playbook history. It sure is. And the Ponzi Playbook, if it is actually a book, this one deserves a whole chapter. 
That's it for today. Follow us on Twitter at Ponzi Playbook, and please tell your friends and family about this show. We really, really appreciate your support. And as I always say, whatever you do, don't start a Ponzi. Ponzi.